The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. He is risen. It's always a great day to be a Christian, I tell people, but today is especially a great day to be a Christian. Uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. I've entitled this message, The Faith of the Thief. We're going to look at the thief on the cross this morning, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 32, Luke 23, 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thanks be to God for his holy word. What Jesus says here is incredibly profound to this thief. In that last verse, verse 43, look what Jesus says. He says, truly, that means amen. This is something that is very true. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Greek word is paradisios. It means a place of blessedness. It's used two times in the New Testament. Once is in the book of Revelation where John says in Revelation 2.7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's a place of eternal life in God's presence. And what Jesus taught, and this is so important for you to understand, because everything hangs in the balance on this one truth, is that when you die, you will go to one of two places. That's it. 
you will go to one of two places. Everybody that who has ever lived, the billions and billions and billions of people who have ever lived, and you can think about all the names throughout history, whether it's Joan of Arc or Cleopatra or Julius Caesar or Johnny Cash, you put the name down on paper, and they're in one of two places. They're either in paradise or what Jesus called the lake of fire. And I want to impress upon you this morning because the devil doesn't want you to think about that truth. He wants you to, one, either deny the fact that there's an afterlife, or two, not think about it. He wants you to go about your life just being consumed with your day-to-day activities, not thinking about the fact that one day you will have to stand face-to-face with God, and you will be either for eternity in paradise, like this thief on the cross, or in hell, which is probably where the other thief went. Jesus said to his disciples, this is John 14, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's heaven. I'm going to prepare this place for you. But he also warned people with tears in his eyes over and over and over and over again that if they would not repent of their sins and trust him as Savior, that they would go to a place forever called Gehenna. Gehenna. Listen, this is what Jesus says. This is Matthew 5, 22. He says, you fool, you will be liable to the Gehenna of fire or the hell of fire. Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into Gehenna. Matthew 5.30, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into Gehenna, go into hell. What's this word Gehenna? Gehenna was a dump outside the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Some of the previous kings in Israel's history, like Ahaz and Manasseh, had sacrificed children in this place. And then later, King Josiah removed the, the false altars, and he made this place the city dump. And they would throw all sorts of refuse there. They would throw all sorts of trash there. They would even put dead bodies in Gehenna that uh, had no place for burial. So it was a place that stunk. It was a place of trash. And what they would do is the trash would just pile up. And to get rid of it, they would set it on fire. And they would start burning it. And Jesus himself said there in Gehenna, the fire never goes out. They're always burning the trash. And that's what Jesus says hell is like. In fact, he says in Matthew chapter 25 that it's a lake of fire. It's an eternal fire. He says in Matthew 25, 41, he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So friends, I want to tell you, I want to ask you, Do you know where you are going when you die? Are you ready to face God? You think that your life is just going to perpetually go on, but it won't. It will end. The writer of Hebrews says it is appointed for every man to die, and then comes the judgment. When I was a little boy, this reality was pressed upon me because when I was two years old, my father was tragically killed in a plane crash. 
We searched for them, and they could never find them. But the Lord used that in my life in a profound way because I begin to think about death, and I begin to think about eternity, and I begin to ask questions. You need to be asking questions. What happens when I die? And that gave people an opportunity to tell me, look, there's a heaven and there's a hell. And only those who repent of their sins and trust Christ and what he has done on the cross will inherit heaven or the kingdom of God. That's it. And the Lord pressed that upon me. But so often, we don't think about these things. And that's just what the devil wants. And that's why Solomon said it's better to be in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Because when you go to a funeral, you're faced with the reality of death. And you're forced to think about these things. But this is why Jesus came. Jesus came because of these ultimate realities. He came so that we wouldn't be under the penalty of hell and the lake of fire forever. He came to deliver us just like he does this thief on the cross straight to heaven. This is why Jesus came. So look at verse 32. Look at verse 32. Let's look at these criminals. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Uh, these men were bad men. Uh, the word is kakorgos, which means an evildoer, somebody who works evil. These aren't the wet bandits. These aren't, these aren't guys who just happen to be crucified. These are bad men. Under Roman law, to be executed, you either had to uh, kill someone or be a seditionist. So these guys are, are bad guys. They've led, they've led evil lives. And their stories are similar. similar. They're both called criminals. Uh, in other gospels, they're called robbers. They're called evildoers. And at the beginning, they're both reviling Christ. But by the end, and this is what we're going to see, one has repented one has repented. And, and what I think is fascinating about this is the one that has repented, the one that Jesus says will enter paradise, there's no Sunday school on his resume. There's no church attendance, right? There's, no, there, there's not even baptism. So nothing that, that you would expect to find in this man. There's no, not one ounce of good works. Yet this man, Jesus says, but at the end, will enter into eternity into enter into heaven. So that's why this is so important. And by the way, this is also really important that these details are mentioned because the Old Testament had prophesied that Jesus would be executed with criminals. You see, every facet of our Lord's death follows the Old Testament predictions. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, he says, I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me, talking about Isaiah he says, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. So the fact that Jesus is crucified with these two criminals is a visual demonstration that our Lord would die a wicked man's death. Now we're going to come back to these criminals, but first I want you to see the facts of the crucifixion, okay? So look at the facts of the crucifixion of Christ. Look at verse 33. They came to the place that is called the skull, and there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his 
left. So they marched him outside the city gate, that's where this location was, to a place called the Skull. And the, the word in Aramaic, which was the common language of the time, it's Golgotha. That's, that's the word. In Latin, it's translated Calvaria, where we get our English word Calvary. In Greek, it's cranion, where we get our English word cranium. Here's why we don't know exactly why it was called the place of the skull. It was either called the place of the skull because that's where the Romans would often execute people, so it was a place of death, or because one of the rocks perhaps looked like the cranium of the skull. But Luke says that they took him here and they crucified him, and that means that they took probably four or five-inch nails and they put them through his wrist on the crossbeam and they took other nails and they either had him put his feet on top of one another and put one nail directly through or they would have the, the leg straddling the vertical beam and they would put nails in on either side. The point is, is that you would be pierced and the nails then would suspend you to the cross and you would hang there gasping for breath, trying to pull yourself up in order for you, your lungs simply to breathe. It was designed to be the most painful, humiliating way that you could possibly die. When they would take you to the place of crucifixion, they would take off your clothes so that people could scoff at you. And they would put you right alongside a road so that those that were traveling by would look at you. Now, I was just in Jerusalem, and about right now, it's about 45, 50 degrees in Jerusalem. So you can think about being exposed to the elements and what that must have felt like. We're talking about an incredible torture. And they would leave you there, sometimes days, until you would die. It was a brutally slow death. Nobody wanted to die by means of crucifixion, but yet look what our Lord does. Verse 34, look at verse 34. Jesus said, this is as he's being crucified. It's either the moment that the nails are going in or the moment that they lift him up. The first thing that our Lord says on the cross is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Essentially, as the blood starts to flow, Jesus begins his priestly ministry of intercession. Do you know what the Lord is doing right now this morning at the right hand of God the Father? He is interceding for us. Did you know that? That the Lord is praying for those that are his. And Jesus begins on that moment on the cross to pray. And he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive who? Forgive the, the soldiers. Forgive those that are passing by. To forgive the, the thief that's going to be reviling them. He's praying that God would forgive them. And we know that 50 days later that many believed at Pentecost thousands. Many were the same people that, crossed, that passed by before the cross. So God answered our Lord's prayer. But Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And look, look why he says, the Father should forgive them. He says they know not what they do. They know not what they do. What does he mean by that? He means that they don't realize that he's the Messiah. They don't, they, they don't realize that he's the Son of God. 
They, they, they don't understand it. So Jesus is saying that there's a level of ignorance here. Yes, they're culpable of putting him to death. They're sinning, but they're not sinning in the, in, in the magnificent sense that they know that he's the Messiah. They're ignorant. And by the way, so is our world today. Our world is ignorant of the fact of why Jesus went to the cross. Just go, just go ask people, why was Jesus crucified? And they'll tell you, well, he, 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 he thought he was the Messiah, and it was just a series of unfortunate events. He was a martyr. He was a martyr for his cause. Uh, people will tell you that he was uh, a mere man that was simply deceived, that he thought he was the Messiah. But if you read the Gospels carefully, the cross was at the center of our Lord's mission from the very beginning. John the Baptist said when he came to be baptized, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, he's the picture of this Passover lamb that is coming to take away sin. Let me ask you a question. How were lambs in the Old Testament used to take away sin? The priest would take them to an altar, slit their throat, and sacrifice them. In other words, John the Baptist is saying he's a sacrifice. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. This is why he came. He came to die. He didn't come just to give moral lessons. He didn't come just to heal. He didn't come just merely to raise the dead. He didn't come just to show us the golden rule. He came as a sin sacrifice for you. That's why he came. Paul says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the cross is an atonement. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross to pay the sin penalty for sinners. That's why he came into the world. That's why he went to the cross. Uh, at Caesarea Philippi, which was a massive turning point in Jesus' ministry, that, that's where Peter said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Then Jesus took, took his disciples together and he says from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. So Jesus is telling his disciples this all the way up to Jerusalem and God orchestrates every single fact of the crucifixion, like I said earlier, in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures, including, if you look back at verse 34, look what the Roman soldiers do with his garments. They cast lots to divide his garments. That's in fulfillment of Psalm 22:18, which says, they divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. Do you see how Jesus is fulfilling all of these Old Testament uh, scriptures? I emphasize this because Jews today deny this. They deny it. They say Jesus hasn't fulfilled any of the Old Testament scriptures regarding the prophecy. Gentiles deny it. They say he's just a mere man. But he's not. He is fulfilling all of the prophecies of the Messiah, including this incredible shame of having his garments divided. Now, while he is on the cross, he is going to be mocked by five groups of people. Okay, so let me just give these to you quickly. Uh, first, were the bypassers. Now, Luke doesn't specifically mention them, 
But uh, if you look at verse four, uh, 35, he says, and the people stood by watching. The other gospels tell us that everyone that walked alongside the road was mocking him. Mark 15, 29 says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, and you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So the people that walked by were mocking him. Second, the rulers scoffed at him. By rulers, we're talking about the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Uh, verse 35 says, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, quote, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So they were sneering at him. They said, and here's what's fascinating, look what they say here. They said, he saved others. So they don't deny the miracles. You see that? They don't deny the miracles. How did they explain the miracles that Jesus did? You remember? They attributed the miracles to Satan. They said he does the miracles by, by Beelzebub, by, by Satan himself. So they don't deny the, the miracles. They said, look, if he saved others, let him save himself. Mark, Mark adds another detail Mark 15, 32, they said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross so that we may see and believe. Let me tell you something. Unbelief, unbelief always asks for one more proof, for one more miracle, for one more display of power. Here's the thing. They'd seen miracle upon miracle upon miracle for three years. <laughs> They'd seen uh, Lazarus raised from the dead. They'd seen that man in Jerusalem who was born blind healed. They had seen it. That man had made testimony before these, before these men just a few months earlier. They'd seen the miracles, but yet they deny it. Third, the soldiers mocked him. Look at verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine. Now, the sour wine, at, at first when Jesus was on the cross, they offered him a wine. That first wine that they offered him was a sedative, basically to numb the pain. The, they're mocking him here and, and offering him essentially a vinegar. It, it's, not, it's not the wine that you and I normally think of. They're offering him a vinegar. It was essentially acted like a Red Bull to prolong the pain, to wake him up a little bit, and to, to heighten all the sensations. And so they began mocking him, and then they offered him this sour wine. And they said to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Remember, the soldiers had already mocked him with the crown of thorns and the purple and crimson robe. They'd put the, the crown of thorns on his head and beaten him with a reed. They had done a mock parade, a mock military parade, and pretended to salute him. And now they are, again, mocking him the same way as the religious rulers, saying, if you are this king of the Jews, come down from that cross. Of course, they have no context or understanding of, of what they're saying. Fourth, Pilate, the governor, mocked him. Look at verse 38. There was an inscription over him. 
everybody who was crucified, they would normally put an inscription over your cross. And the reason for that is, is because the Romans wanted everybody to know what you had done. So as people walked by, they would know the accusation and the crime that you are guilty of because the cross was meant to be a deterrent for crime. People would say, man, that looks really bad. I don't want to do what that guy did to, to have happen to me what's happening to that guy. And so a, an inscription would be put over the cross to explain why you were being crucified. And Pilate himself, John tells us, put the inscription, this is the king of the Jews. And he put it in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And Pilate, in, in so doing, was really mocking the, the Jews of the time. He was saying, this is your king who is crucified. This is the king of the Jews. And in so doing, he was also mocking our Lord. Um, the Jewish leaders were very upset about this sign, and they asked Pilate to take it down or to, or to say he claimed that he was king of the Jews. Remember what Pilate said? He said, I have written what I have written. The cross always has been, Paul says, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. The cross is a stumbling block. Jesus is king. He is our Messiah. He was crucified. And that's something that the world finds very difficult to reckon with. How can you claim to worship a crucified king? Well, because we know the meaning of the crucifixion, right? And then, fifth, even the criminals mocked him. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Now, we know that both of the criminals earlier had been mocking him, but here we're, we're told specifically that one continued to rail at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That phrase railed at him is one Greek word, blasphemo. You can hear where we get our English word blaspheme. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it blaspheming him. The NASB, the New American Standard, translates it hurling abuse at him. So think about what's taking place. This criminal, this evildoer, takes it upon himself to give advice to the Son of God about how he should carry about his kingdom. Think about that. You know, you go to these football games, and, you know, Andy Reid or Bill Belichick is down on the sideline, and somebody thinks, you know, I really think he's doing it wrong, and takes it upon himself to tell everybody in the stands what they should be doing, right? You, you might be one of these people. <laughs> it, it, it's really unfathomable to think that somebody who is an evil man takes it upon himself to tell our Lord what to do and, and mocks him while so doing. So you, you see the ignominy here. You see the shame that is being heaped upon Christ. You see uh, the verbal abuse that he is enduring. So it is in this context that we now come back to the thief on the cross. And something remarkable has taken place. Something remarkable has taken place in just three hours while they've been hanging on that cross. 
And what has taken place, I'm going to give you one word, one word, repentance. Repentance. Repentance literally means a change of mind. That your mind, the, wor- the word is metanoia, it means a transformation of your, of your mind. His mind has been transformed. And repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It leads ultimately to faith, but something has happened in this man's outlook that he's changed. He's become a new person. The way he thinks about our Lord is different. He's repented. Now, Jesus, from the very beginning, when he began his ministry, he started Matthew 4:17 saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he went around and he told people what was Jesus's message when he would preach up in Galilee in the temple. He was saying, "I am the king and you need to repent. Change your mind about where you stand before God and change your mind about who I am. That's what repentance is. And I want you to pay very careful attention to this because this is the difference between heaven and hell. Okay? It's repentance. And this thief repented. What does it mean to repent? That, that's the critical question to answer. What does it mean to repent of your sins? First, let me, let me just give these to you quickly a changed mind about the holiness of God. Repentance means to change your mind about the holiness of God. Look what he says, verse 40. The other rebuked him. The, other re- the one criminal rebuked the other criminal, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Notice how he associates Jesus with God himself. And he says, there should be a holy fear that you possess in this moment because you are talking to God. The word that he uses for fear is phobia. You know that word, or or phobio. Um, It means, it doesn't just mean fear like you would fear a spider, though though you could think about it like that. It means a profound respect, a profound sense of gravity of the moment that you have, you have a caution about what you're facing. Um, you remember C.S. Lewis described Aslan, one of, the, one of the, the children asked, is he safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. And our Lord is holy. He's holy. And he's not safe, but he's good. And that's what this criminal is reminding the other of. He says, look, remember who you're talking to right now. That you are blaspheming God. And so he begins to think differently about who God is. And when repentance happens, this is one of the marks of repentance, is you go from just caring about your life, trying to earn money, trying to to please a spouse, trying to raise your kids, Something happens to you and you begin to think about, as, as Francis Schaeffer said, the God who is there. All of a sudden, before you weren't thinking about God, and all of a sudden, now you are. 
and you're thinking about the fact that there is, as Isaiah said, a holy God, a holy one of Israel, who is the judge of the living and the dead. That's the first part of repentance, a changed mind about the holiness of God, that we stand before God, he is our creator, we, is our, we are his creature. Second, a changed mind about sin. I'm gonna use that word, that word that makes everybody uncomfortable, that word that will get you can- canceled on social media. Sin, S-I-N. Look at verse 41. He says, we, we are being condemned justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. He's saying, what we are enduring right now is something that we actually deserve. And I think he understood this, not just in a physical sense, but a spiritual sense. Paul says, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That if you sin against God, sin means to transgress the moral law of God. And if you sin against God, what you deserve is death. And everyone has sinned, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Are you just looking at CNN and saying, oh, those, those are the real sinners out there? Well, they are. We're all sinners. But let me ask you, do you believe that you're a sinner? Have you acknowledged your sin before God? See, that's uncomfortable. I was reading about Martin Lloyd-Jones in Westminster Chapel, and a lady who'd been a member there in London for 30 years left the church, and she wrote one of the deacons, and she said, the reason why I'm leaving is is because the preacher speaks to us as if we are sinners. <laughs> Imagine that. But I'm serious. Do you understand that you have sinned against a holy God? And that the wage of sin is death? Some of you are flirting with your life, standing on the edge of a precipice and daring God daring God with your sin on the precipice of hell. And you think that God won't judge you? You're like Lieutenant Dan sitting on the top of that ship, shaking your fist at God. Friends, time is short, and we are sinners. And, and this man understood that, maybe for the first time in his life. He says, we're suffering these things justly. We have received the due reward for our deeds. And listen, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven until you realize this reality. You won't. You won't. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. Third, a changed mind about Christ. A changed mind about Christ. Look what he says. This man on the middle cross has done nothing wrong. No truer words have ever been spoken. This man is a perfect man. This man, this thief, realized that our Lord was indeed the Messiah. This man isn't living in a vacuum. 
He knows the claims that Christ has made. He knows the stories of the miracles. He's heard that he claimed to be the king, the Messiah, the son of man. He knows what our Lord has said. And he says, this man has done nothing wrong. He has this changed mind about who our Lord is. And this, this is so critical. It is so critical. This is what repentance is, is that you, you have a 180 degree turn about who you understand Christ to be. Before you might just think he was a good person. Now you come to face to face and you believe that he's Lord, that he's the son of God, and he is that he is the raised and resurrected Messiah that right now is at the right hand of God the Father. And uh, th- this is what it means to be a Christian. This, this is at, at the heart of hearts what it means to be a Christian is that you believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Son of God. Um, let me just give you some quotes from social media I saw this week. These are just people responding on, on social media uh, to some things I put out. Let me just give you some of these. Quote, if Christ were to come back today, I would bleeping crucify him again. End quote. Quote, why don't Christians realize that treating Jesus like God is idolatry? End quote. Quote, he was not, nor was he ever the promised Jewish Messiah. He did not fulfill any prophecies and failed the test of the prophet. End quote. This man has a completely different mindset. He's come to the realization that this man is perfect. He's the Messiah. He is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And then fourth, he had a changed mind about the kingdom. A changed mind about the kingdom. Look at verse 42. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when, he, when you come into your kingdom. Now let me ask you, what's he talking about in terms of a kingdom? What's he talking about in terms of the kingdom? The kingdom of God, and this is a little excursus. Let me just give you this, because otherwise you're not going to understand what he understood and what he's saying. The kingdom of God is never defined in the New Testament. There's not one verse that says this is the kingdom of God. But if you study the Gospels carefully you'll see that the kingdom of God really is about four things, four things. First, it's the fact that Jesus controls all creation. Second, that Jesus possesses authority over the spiritual realm. Third, that Jesus restores this broken world. And fourth, Jesus forgives sins. Let me say those again. So, Jesus demonstrates that he controls all of creation. Remember, he would calm storms and turn water into wine and tell the disciples to throw nets on the other side to, to, to catch fish. Jesus controls all of creation. That's part of the kingdom. Second, that Jesus possesses authority over the spiritual realm. He would cast out demons. One time there was a demoniac, and he cast out all the demons into a herd of swine, and they ran off a cliff. Third, Jesus restores a broken world. He heals the lame, the sick, the blind, the deaf. He raises the dead. All of that is a picture of the kingdom that is to come in the future. 
You see, Jesus' ministry is the kingdom breaking into reality. We're seeing glimpses of what the future will be like. And most importantly for us is that Jesus possesses the capacity to forgive sins. Jesus told people that your sins have been forgiven. You remember there was a, a man who was lame, and, and Jesus tells him, your sins are forgiven, and, and the Pharisees say, that's blasphemy, and he says, so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, take up your mat and walk, and of course he does. Jesus forgives sins. That's part of what it means to be ushering in the kingdom. So this man knows this. This man knows this because how else could he make this statement? Look at verse 43. This is not a question. Do you see this? You see a question mark at the end. It's not a question. It's a statement of faith. It's a statement of faith. He said to him, he says to him, or sorry, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Let me ask you a question. How many good works has this man done? How many good works has this man done? None. He's done nothing. Nothing. How could he believe that he could possibly go to the kingdom? Answer, he believed that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. He believed that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. So he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All true repentance comes hand in hand with saving faith. This man believed that he was the Messiah, and he believed that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. And friends, there's no other way to enter heaven. There, you won't. Paul says this, by works of the law, no man will be justified. By works of the law, no one will be justified. So it is by faith that one is justified. This man has faith that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And then verse 43. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. There it is. You're going to die, but your life is going to go on. Your soul will be with me in paradise. How can Jesus make that claim? How can he say, you will be with me in paradise? We're, we're talking about a wicked man, a wicked man who's done no good works. Answer, because he knows that while he is on the, cry, on the cross, that he is paying the penalty for his sin. That's the only way. That's it. It's the only way. And he knows three days later that he is going to rise again. That's it. That's it. It's all Christ. Do you see that? Nothing that you do. It's simply repentance and coming to the realization that Christ is who he said he is, that Christ paid the penalty for your sins, and that he conquers sin and death for you. That's it. Jonathan Edwards said this. He says, quote, Christ arose as the head of believers to deliver them from a state of death, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. He is their head and captain of salvation, broke the prison, set the doors wide open, broke the sill, rolled away the stone, laid the keepers dead, left the sepulcher open, that all the dead that he has redeemed 
may come forth. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying, and he was saying it with 100% confidence that this man would be with him in paradise. So let me ask you a question. Do you have this confidence that if something were to happen to you today, that you would be with Christ in paradise? Do you know where you stand before God? Do you know? Repent. Today is the day to repent, to change your mind about the holiness of God, to change your mind about the reality of your sin, to change your mind about who Christ is, that he is indeed the Son of God, to change your mind about the kingdom that Christ offers forgiveness. Today is the day of repentance. Don't leave here today without repenting of your sin. And I'm talking to some of you who have been in the church all your life. I'm talking to nice, quote, Christian people who will go enjoy the Easter brunch somewhere after this. Don't leave here without first repenting and coming face to face with Christ and clinging to him in faith and saying, Lord, I believe, I believe with my heart of hearts that you are the Messiah, that you paid the sin penalty for my sin, that you are who you said you are. In the moment that you repent, guess what? There's no works needed. There's no good work. You don't have to walk out of here and try and earn this. The moment that you truly repent of your sins, you know what our Lord says? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's, the, that, that, that's why Christianity is a religion of hope. It's not, oh, we got to get busy to try and earn this. It's, man, we're showing up here to praise Christ because he already has. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would repent of all of our sin, that we would see it for what it is, we pray, Lord, that we would repent of our view of Christ, that we wouldn't just view Christ as mere man, as a martyr, somebody who deceived himself, that we would view Christ as the eternal Son of God who came on a redemption mission to lay his life down for us. We pray, Lord, that we would see Christ that way, and we pray, Lord, that we would see and understand and know that only in Christ is the forgiveness of sins. So, Lord, I pray that for those who have been walking contrary to the gospel, walking contrary to your kingdom, I pray, Lord, right now that you would prick their heart and lead them to a place of repentance where they would leave a different person, just like this thief on the cross, that they would turn 180 degrees and come to Christ, repentance and faith. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the hope that our sin debt has been paid in full. Thanks be to God. We ask all this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.